0: Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 15, The Maritime Prelude. I want to start today by apologizing for the long delay between episodes. I spent the last week attending my first in-person academic conference since before the pandemic, traveling all the way to the Mile High City of Denver, Colorado. And I had a heck of a lot of fun and included playing tennis on a rooftop as if the elevation in Denver wasn't enough. But now I'm back to the 1860s. To be precise, we'll start in mid-December 1863 when an American naval ship entered Halifax Harbor towing a captured vessel called the Chesapeake. The events that followed threatened to spark a war between Britain and America. Think of the Trent crisis that we discussed a few weeks ago when Union forces boarded a British vessel carrying Southern diplomats and carried them off to prison. But this time, there would be no Christmas deadline by which time something might happen in response. Instead, several Northern ships lay waiting in Halifax Harbor. They faced off against the batteries of the British garrison of the Citadel and around the bay. The moment was tense. Any wrong move could unleash violence on the city and the continent, and at its center, the chief political figure of Nova Scotia, a man by the name of Charles Tupper, was not in a diplomatic mood. Charles Tupper was not yet officially the head of the Nova Scotia Tory government, but he might as well have been. Ever since the mid-1850s, whenever the Tories had been in power, although the top job had gone to Tupper's mentor, William Johnston, the main political decisions and leadership had been Tupper's. Within a few months, Johnston would take up a job as a judge and Tupper would take over as the colony's prime minister. But he was already the man who the governor turned to for advice at this moment of crisis. And Tupper's advice was more than a little pugnacious. As Tupper saw it, the Americans had captured a ship in British waters, and what's more, they were known to be holding a Nova Scotian captive on board. Tupper demanded that the Americans release the Nova Scotian immediately. And what, the governor asked, if the American captain refuses? In that case, replied Tupper, you must sink his vessel from the batteries. So yeah, Tupper was not mincing words. Now Tupper was, to be fair, a bit of a talker. When he later formed a long partnership with John A. Macdonald, some said that Macdonald captained the ship while Tupper blew wind in the sails. But the situation was still tense and Tupper's threat mattered. From the start, the Chesapeake affair, as it came to be known, was a diplomatic disaster. It began with a few Confederate sympathizers who found themselves in the Maritimes, determined to fight against the Union forces. Their plan was simple capture a fast-sailing American vessel, and turn it into a ship of war with which they could raid American traders and wreak havoc on northern commerce. All through the summer of 1863, one of the conspirators had been hiding out in Halifax, raising funds by claiming that he was creating a book called Brain's Mercantile Statistical Work and Business Directory of Canada and the Provinces. In reality, the conspirators funneled all of the money they gathered from local Halifax businesses who were going to advertise in the book into their piracy scheme. In early December, they hatched their plot, traveling to New York to board the Chesapeake on its regular trip to Portland, Maine, pretending to be just regular passengers. Then in the middle of the night, the men opened a cache of weapons that they had snuck on board and proceeded to take control of the ship though killing one crew member and injuring several others in the process. It only went downhill from there. They loaded the surviving passengers and some of the crew onto a vessel and set them adrift six miles out of St. John, New Brunswick. The only problem was that they hadn't thought clearly enough to realize that once they captured the ship, they needed people on board who knew how to sail it. In the scuffle for control they had injured the ship's engineer only to then make him continue on his job because well they needed him. They also kept many of the original crew on board too as captive workers. The next task was to procure sufficient coal to allow them to sail to Bermuda for temporary safety. So for the next several days they came in and out of harbors along the New Brunswick and Nova Scotian coast attempting not very successfully to resupply their stolen ship. Meanwhile, the American authorities had been alerted and were searching the seas for the pirates. What followed was a cat and mouse chase with several near misses. In one instance, some of the main conspirators got stuck ashore and had to travel by land to Halifax, hoping to rendezvous with their fellows later. In the end, The Americans captured the Chesapeake when they sealed off a bay into which the pirates had sailed. Most of the conspirators managed to escape on foot, except for one Nova Scotian who was left asleep in the captain's bunk. It must have been a hurried escape, either either that or they didn't like him very much. The problem for the Americans, though, was that they had captured the ship in British waters, and they now found themselves holding a Nova Scotian captive so they needed first to report the incident to British authorities and get clearance to take the ship and the captive and other wanted men back to the north. That's where things get interesting, and that's when the American naval vessel entered Halifax Harbor towing the captured Chesapeake, ready to face the wrath of Charles Tupper and the Halifax crowd. There seemed to have been as many responses to this incident in Halifax as there were taverns in the town. Some were embarrassed by the piracy of their their fellow colonials. Others were anti-Northern and so were sympathetic to the whole scheme, at least somewhat. Even others were pro-Southern and so they were very sympathetic. Even as the local government negotiated for the release of the captive Nova Scotian, a crowd gathered on the docks. It was arranged that the Americans would send in the captive and place him into the custody of local authorities. But, When the small boat set off to bring the captive in, some of the crowd noticed that he was in chains, and this stirred the crowd to anger, though likely they were primed for it anyway. No sooner had the Americans drawn up to the dock than some local sympathizers pushed to the front of the crowd and absconded with the captive onto a waiting boat. The local constable, who was supposed to be taking the prisoner into custody, attempted to intervene. He pulled out his revolver to shoot the fleeing man, but other men in the crowd wrestled him down. It was more than a little embarrassing for both the British and the Americans. Now, in the longer run, this captive, plus the others who were involved, will be captured and face a series of trials that took place through early 1864 and some trials even lasting longer. But the American government seems to have decided to play this whole situation off in a more diplomatic fashion from the start, in contrast to what had happened in the Trent incident. As Lincoln had said at that time, one war at a time. And so the Chesapeake affair, despite being more colorful than the Trent affair, failed to excite the attention and the same amount of military preparedness as the earlier incident. These cross-border shenanigans were becoming more common, and neither Britain nor the North wanted to extend the hostilities. They do serve as another reminder, though, of the possible diplomatic danger created by the American Civil War, and also as a nice introduction to the sometimes belligerent career of Charles Tupper, the man who was by this point pretty much Premier of Nova Scotia and who would become an ardent advocate of the confederation of the British North American colonies. Even as the trials over the Chesapeake stretched on through the winter of 1864, Charles Tupper and his counterpart in New Brunswick, whom we met last week, Leonard Tilley, well, they set their minds on a political project that neither really loved, but both treated as a kind of consolation prize. This was the uninspiring but long-standing idea of maritime union. Way back, Right after the conquest of France, Britain had acquired one large colony of Nova Scotia. It occupied all of the old French colony of Acadia. But no sooner did the British take possession of Nova Scotia than they divided it into the separate colonies of Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick. Actually, the British also granted the island of Cape Breton independence too, but then they reincorporated it back into Nova Scotia in 1820. Ever since the mid-1850s, a series of British appointed governors had been pushing this idea of maritime reunification, of re-establishing a large Acadian or Nova Scotian colony. The idea wasn't so much unpopular as it was uninspiring. True, Prince Edward Island especially wasn't keen to lose its autonomy and its legislature but other politicians could sometimes be won over in principle to the idea of having a larger sphere in which to operate, a, a grander venue for their ambitions. And this is what made maritime unions so appealing to the governors. They saw it as a solution to parochialism and localism, a way to get the locals to think beyond the spoils system. But this was hardly an idea to inspire mass devotion and a devoted public following it's almost certain that Maritime Union would have remained a a tedious debating topic if it hadn't been for the perfidy of the Canadian government and what the Maritimers saw as the Canadian betrayal over the intercolonial railway agreement. Now, railways did inspire imagination and ambition and undoubtedly greed as well. The Maritimers could absolutely get excited about an intercolonial rail uniting their colonies with the much larger market in the Canadas. This is why New Brunswick and Nova Scotia politicians from all parties had lined up to negotiate with the Canadians and British financiers to attempt to get a rail link built. But if you recall, the Canadian government under Sandfield, Macdonald, and Sickhout had backed away. The groups had met in Quebec City in the autumn of 1862 and hatched a deal. Then, they all sailed to London and negotiated for British backing to finance the rail line. But when the Canadians got back home, they pulled back. Even as the Nova Scotia and New Brunswick parliaments passed legislation putting into motion an intercolonial railway deal, the sandfield MacDonald government paused and then, in late 1863, claimed that the deal was off. They were under too much financial pressure. Critics within the government felt it was too expensive. There was the whole matter of how it was to be financed and the British government's insistence on a kind of sinking fund. It just wasn't possible. This announcement is what reignited the quest for maritime union. However reasonable the Canadians claims, it didn't matter in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. The Canadians betrayed them. Almost all of the papers agreed. Certainly, Tilly and Tupper felt this way. So maybe, just maybe, the Maritimers should do something else. Maybe if they were united, they would be a stronger block that the Canadians would need to respect. All of this was sweet music in the ears of one man in particular, Arthur Gordon. Now, thanks to the satirical literary genius of Canadian historian Donald Creighton, Arthur Gordon has gone down in Canadian history as a birdie, Woosterish toff who just didn't get it. Gordon might not have fully deserved to be belittled. He was successful in a number of ventures in reforming the militia in New Brunswick and then later as a governor in other colonies. But it's hard not to find Creighton's caricature amusing and telling. Gordon arrived in New Brunswick in 1861 to take up the role of governor full of his own eminence. He came replete with connections. He was the son of a British Prime Minister, Lord Aberdeen, and a former assistant to William Ewart Gladstone, at this time the British Chancellor of the Exchequer and the man who would go on to dominate British politics in the second half of the 19th century. As a 15-year-old, the earnest young Gordon wrote to his father, I feel an excessive desire to be eminent. My idea, one that has occupied me for nearly three years, is this to emigrate to Canada, our most important colony. Though not able to do so in England, I might perhaps lead a Canadian parliament. So there you go, set your sights low and you might succeed. And I guess Canada for the young Gordon was low. As a man and once appointed to the vice regal position in New Brunswick, he quickly formed the view that New Brunswick politics was too small and petty Its leading lights not much more than self-serving parochials. He felt that he couldn't form friendships with anyone below his station without giving offence. Then there's the fact that he asked Anglican church leaders to include himself in the mass when they were praying for Her Majesty Queen Victoria and to refer to him as Thy Servant Arthur. So the sobriquet stuck perhaps to Gordon's annoyance and so he's gone down in history as Thy Servant Arthur. When the Canadians abandoned the intercolonial railway scheme, or seemed to anyway, more on that in a moment, Gordon set to work with his ambitious plan to recreate Acadia. No doubt in his own mind, he would be the leading light of the whole project. The trick in self-governing colonies, though, was that the governor could advise but rarely act independently, certainly not in a field such as this when the fate of the colonies themselves was at stake. Still, he wrote to and visited with the other governors in the Maritimes and managed to stir up interest in the project. Lucky for him, the key political figures in both New Brunswick and Nova Scotia felt the idea had some merit. So the governments of both colonies began preparing material to introduce into their parliaments, at the very least suggesting a conference for later in the year on the question of maritime union. Alas, for poor Arthur Gordon, At this time, the fickle Canadians changed their minds yet again. Late in February of 1864, an intrepid traveler showed up by horseshoe in New Brunswick. Having left Rimouski early in the year, he arrived in the region of the Restigouche River in northern New Brunswick. The Canadian enthusiast was none other than Sandford Fleming, dynamic engineer, architect, and surveyor, of course, later one of the founders of Standard Time. At this time, Fleming was someone who was involved in just about every major railway project in British North America. He had worked on the Great Northern Railway, was in the midst of campaigning for a Pacific Railway, and would soon be hired to work on a Nova Scotian Railway. But early in 1864, he came on a mission to be the chief surveyor of the Intercolonial Railway. And who had sent him? Well, It was the Canadians, who seemed to have changed their minds. Although they weren't committing to building the intercolonial railway, not yet, they had, though, all on their own, decided to entirely fund Fleming's survey of the proposed route. So, even before the New Brunswick Parliament began talking about a possible maritime union, Fleming passed through the capital at Fredericton on his way south. By April, Fleming reached Halifax and met with Charles Tupper. This didn't prevent the maritime parliaments from continuing their maritime union discussions, but it did slowly deflate the air of anticipation out of the already only partly filled balloon. The legislatures agreed to set up a conference to discuss maritime union, and leaders like Tilley and Tupper said some fine words. That said, The newspapers ignored the whole thing like it was paint drying on the side of a barn. Sanford Fleming did more than just survey the route of a proposed railway on his trip down east though. He also brought with him a message from a Canadian politician who was soon to enter the Canadian government alongside John A. Macdonald and Georges Etienne Cartier. This was our good friend, Darcy McGee. The sweet-tongued McGee was relatively well known in the Maritimes, certainly in Irish circles, but also because of previous speaking tours through the region. It was hard not to enjoy an evening with Darcy McGee, and he had charmed more than one Maritime politician. Now, he urged Fleming to arrange for a Canadian visit to the Maritimes. Perhaps, he suggested, the Maritime governments might invite Canadians to come east on a social and political engagement to talk about the intercolonial railway and perhaps even British North American political union. McGee made this proposal even before Sanfield MacDonald left office, before Brown made his famous offer to come into a coalition, government with the aim of confederation. McGee had long been a proponent of both rail and union, and he, he wanted to do something about it so Fleming set to work to arrange an invitation. Charles Tupper wasn't convinced, but local business leaders found the whole thing much more agreeable. So first, the Chamber of Commerce of St. John and then the Chamber of Commerce of Halifax both extended an invitation to McGee and any other Canadians to come east that summer of 1864. The best part of it all was that it could seem on the surface as if the Canadians were on the receiving end, as they hadn't invited themselves. And it was all to be a sort of social engagement. And if the speechifying Victorians happened to dwell on the many benefits of political union and a railway link, well, so much the better. And so began what one critic later called the big intercolonial drink. Yes, there was a lot of drinking involved, More than one person had a heck of a time. In all, about 100 Canadians traveled east via the Grand Trunk Railway arriving in pouring rain in Portland, Maine, only to have to wait on board a ship, some some of them even on the top deck, before sailing to New Brunswick the next day. There were more than 30 members of the Assembly and almost as many from the upper chamber, the Legislative Council, though McGee was the only actual member of the Canadian cabinet. They brought with them about 20 journalists from all political persuasions. And as they sat on board the ship, some unable to get cabins and so forced to spend the night on deck in the pouring rain, Liberal and Reformer and Tory hunkered down, side by side, commiserating in union. But the weather improved in the beautiful maritime August summer, and the whole event turned into one long party. They travelled first to St. John for a, a large banquet, and then headed upriver to the capital at Fredericton. On board the river steamer, the French Canadians in the party sang old voyageur paddling songs, pretending to paddle the boat upriver. Then the English Canadians responded with songs of their own. Everyone joined in. This is, of course, how people entertained themselves before smartphones and probably helped along with a sip uh, or maybe more from the odd flask or two. After New Brunswick, the whole party sailed for Nova Scotia just in time for an annual picnic at the Royal Halifax Yacht Club. Then they sailed past Halifax and into Bedford Basin and went to the w- went to the one spot where all tourists seemed to go at this time. The ruins of the old home occupied by Prince Edward, fourth son of George IV, and most importantly, father of Queen Victoria. Edward, for whom Prince Edward Island had been named, had been banished to service overseas and had brought his good spirit and his long-standing mistress with him. The house he'd kept on Bedford Basin had since fallen into disrepair, but visitors often traveled to the old ruins, and so did the Canadians taking picnic baskets and wine with them. Once there, they all apparently decided that what they really needed to do was play leapfrog. Yes, really, leapfrog. So the legislative councillors hopped over assemblymen and the maritimers tripped over the Canadians. Then came the speeches. If this all sounds fun and bizarre, it's a. I think it's a nice reminder that those starched faces you see in old photographs full of men trying to look statesmanlike and impressive are more than a little misleading, as much created by the technology they had to hold still for so long so an unsmiling face worked best, as well as their sense of what was expected in a portrait. If they carried iPhones in their pockets, I reckon we'd have a very different view of these men and women who were as human as you or I. They enjoyed a good time to be silly and foolish and they made all the mistakes that we stumble into as well. The whole trip, I need to emphasize, decided nothing. Politicians made speeches, Canadians extolled the benefits of union. By this time, of course, the new Canadian government had come into office with the aim of trying for a British North American Union. And so the Maritimers could greet the Canadians with curiosity knowing that other Canadians, the official delegation, would be traveling east in only a matter of weeks to the conference at Charlottetown. Joseph Howe, the father of responsible government in Nova Scotia, well, he attended the banquets as well. Howe enjoyed a glass of wine and good spirits, and we'll be talking more about Howe in later episodes when he ultimately decides to oppose the whole Confederation project but it was at a Saturday night banquet that he made a speech he would later come to regret, rhapsodizing on the spirit of union between the British North Americans. Howe was said to have proclaimed that he was not one of those who thanked God that he was a Nova Scotian, for he was a Canadian as well. He had never thought he was a Nova Scotian, but he looked across the broad continent and studied the mode by which it could be consolidated. And why should union not be brought about? Was it because we wished to live and die in our insignificance? Now, Howe regretted these words later, uh, only to even later from that embrace them again. He spoke them no doubt in the warm glow of a a full belly and a head full of wine, but they serve as a symbol of what Darcy McGee and Sanford Fleming created on that trip in August of 1864 they offered a glimpse of what might come if the Canadians joined with their maritime fellow British North Americans. There was a good deal of caution, but also optimism and goodwill. Much would change. When things turned serious and actual proposals were scribbled onto paper and presented in newspapers and legislatures, critics would come forth, often quite convincing in the Maritimes especially. But for now, the big intercolonial drink had worked its magic, setting up the good spirits for the party to follow. The convivial gin and tonic and glass of wine to start the evening off. The really big drink and the many headaches would come later. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you're hearing, uh, as usual, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoy reading the kind words people write there and in the personal emails I receive. If you really want to support the podcast, uh, head on over to our Patreon page and become an official patron. Next week, we all get on board the steamer, the Queen Victoria, as she sails up the St. Lawrence towards Charlottetown and the conference that created the Canada as we know it. The heavy drinking will continue. There'll be a lot of champagne and oysters, but there will also be some inspirational talk as John A. Macdonald and George Brown and george Etienne Cartier and co. attempt to convince their maritime compatriots to join them in political matrimony. The champagne is definitely going to help. Until then, remember there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.